0: episode 80 the meddlesome priest saint thomas Becket. today is the feast of saint thomas Becket in the traditional calendar it's unfortunately not celebrated liturgically in the new calendar but this is a long-standing feast and is still celebrated where the traditional calendar is followed and again we have the feast of another martyr during this octave of christmas so who was saint thomas Becket? he was born in the early 12th century he seemed to have uh, been well-educated and became something of uh, maybe what we call a legal secretary or clerk, very gifted. He eventually worked in service to the Archbishop of Canterbury, the most powerful ecclesiastical role in England and in much of the Catholic world at that time, to be honest. And through his relationship with the Archbishop of Canterbury, he eventually met the king, who was King Henry II. And King Henry II recognized his abilities and talents and made him his close friend personal confidant and friend, and then eventually Chancellor of England, a role really only second to King Henry himself. And the movie Beckett actually does represent their relationship pretty accurately because it's said by contemporaries that they were like boyhood friends, getting into mischief and trouble together and hunting and riding together and all of that. But even through all of that, Thomas Beckett was a very pious, faithful Catholic. He even did personal penances and austerities even though he, you know, had fun with King Henry and enjoyed all of the privileges of his office as chancellor, and he very much was into the external trappings of that office, it is said, even though privately he was uh, very humble and pious. Eventually, the Archbishop of Canterbury died, and King Henry told Thomas that he wanted him to be Archbishop, not just because he was his friend, but because he saw an opportunity there to have an ally as the head of the church in England, and so he could impose his will on the church. And Thomas recognized this, and he refused more than once, because he knew Henry well, and he knew that Henry was trying to not just limit the power of the church, but to bring it to heel under his own power, under the secular power. And Thomas told him that, as archbishop, he would have to refuse and and oppose the king. But apparently King Henry didn't really believe this, thinking Beck a good enough friend that he would do his will. But as soon as Thomas was consecrated bishop, his life of piety became even more deep, became even more profound and serious. He wasn't play-acting at it just to help the king, as King Henry hoped he would do. Much of the tension and controversy between the two was around um, a set of articles called The Constitutions of Clarendon. And again, they were aimed at restricting the power of the Church in England and restricting the authority of the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, in England. If this sounds familiar, you're right, because some 400 years later, this is exactly what Henry VIII would attempt to do and succeed in doing, declaring himself the head of the Church of England, rejecting the authority of the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, and of course he was opposed by another Thomas, another St. Thomas, St. Thomas More. So there are similarities between these two, but anyway... The constitutions of Clarendon were the main point of disagreement and then were rejected by Becket because Becket wanted to preserve the autonomy of the church, that it not be brought under a secular power. And so he rejected these legal procedures that would basically give the king authority over the clerics of the church. And because of the conflict and the obvious contradiction between remaining Archbishop of Canterbury and also the Chancellor of England, when the, the realm was trying to harm the church, he resigned his chancellorship. And this, of course, made Henry II even more upset. So he, Henry II continued to persecute Thomas in various ways by removing certain privileges that the church had, especially the Archbishop of Canterbury had certain temporal holdings and wealth and all of that stuff. And St. Thomas didn't really care so much about that but cared about the principle of the whole thing where the secular head made himself the spiritual authority over the church, something that was really under his authority more immediately as the spiritual head of the Church of England, of the Church in England, and belonged ultimately to the Bishop of Rome, the Pope. So this is why there was contention between them. It wasn't about the church remaining wealthy or powerful, it was the church remaining independent from secular power. This is a struggle we see happening in our own day. The government infringing upon the religious rights of all Christians and trying to dictate religious practice and belief, not just in churches but in the daily life of Catholics who are try- and other Christians who are trying to live their faith while running their businesses, etc. So this is a constant struggle in the world. The desire of the secular power to either wipe out the sacred or to take it as its subject. To have power over the spiritual or the sacred bodies. And it's in this context that we have this phrase of meddlesome priest be associated with Thomas Becket, even though that particular phrase probably wasn't uttered by Henry II, but something like it was. And attesting to that, we have a monk named Edward Grimm, who was present at the martyrdom of Thomas Becket, and he was assisting him during Vespers in Canterbury Cathedral on December 29th. And according to him, even though he wasn't present when Henry II said this, but according to him, Henry said, What miserable drones and traitors have I nurtured and promoted in my household, who let their lord be treated with such shameful contempt by a lowborn cleric. So whether Edward Grimm was told this by the knights who came and killed Thomas, or he's theorizing what led these four to kill Thomas, we don't know, but that statement from Edward Grimm, eventually became, who will rid me of this meddlesome priest. And uh, the four knights were named Reginald Fitzurse, Hugh de Morville, William de Tracy, and Richard Le Breton. And the most immediate reason for this was Becket refused to withdraw his excommunication of two bishops. And so he was repeatedly threatened. And eventually, these four came to Canterbury Cathedral and struck him down with swords. And the event as I mentioned, took place during vespers or evening prayer, and Edward Grimm witnessed it, and he described it uh, in the following way. The murderers followed him. Absolve, they cried, and restore to communion those whom you have excommunicated and restore their powers to those whom you have suspended. He answered, There has been no satisfaction, and I will not absolve them. Then you shall die, they cried, and receive what you deserve. I am ready, he replied, to die for my Lord, that in my blood the church may obtain liberty and peace but in the name of Almighty God I forbid you to hurt my people, whether clerk or lay. Then they laid sacrilegious hands on him, pulling and dragging him that they may kill him outside the church, or carry him away a prisoner, as they afterwards confessed. But when he could not be forced away from the pillar, one of them pressed on him and clung to him more closely. Him he pushed off, calling him Pander, and saying, Touch me not, Reginald, you owe me fealty and subjection, you and your accomplices act like madmen. The knight, fired with a terrible rage at this severe repulse, waved his sword over the sacred head. No faith, he cried, nor subjection do I owe you against my fealty to my lord the king. Then the unconquered martyr, seeing the hour at hand which should put an end to this miserable life and give him straight away the crown of immortality promised by the lord, inclined his neck as one who prays, and joining his hands he lifted them up, and commended his cause and that of the church to God, to St. Mary, and to the blessed martyr Dennis." Scarce had he said the words than the wicked knight, fearing lest he should be rescued by the people and escape alive, leapt upon him suddenly and wounded this lamb who was sacrificed to God on the head, cutting off the top of the crown which the sacred unction of the chrism had dedicated to God. And by the same blow he wounded the arm of him who tells this. For he, when the others, both monks and clerks, fled, stuck close to the sainted archbishop and held him in his arms till the one he interposed was almost severed. Then he received a second blow on the head, but still stood firm. At the third blow he fell on his knees and elbows, offering himself a living victim, and saying in a low voice, For the name of Jesus, and the protection of the church, I am ready to embrace death. Then the third knight inflicted a terrible wound as he lay, by which the sword was broken against the pavement, and the crown which was large was separated from the head. The fourth knight prevented any from interfering, so that the others might freely perpetrate the murder. As to the fifth, no knight but that clerk who had entered with the knights, that a fifth blow might not be wanting to the martyr who was in other things like to Christ, he put his foot on the neck of the holy priest and precious martyr, and, horrible to say, scattered his brain and blood over the pavement, calling out to the others, Let us away, knights, he will rise no more. So this event kind of symbolizes the spiritual conflict that we're always embroiled in, or the prince of this world, and his powers always try to enter the church and kill what is sacred, and cut off the head so that they might have their will unobstructed. And that's why fighting for truth and the rights of the church is so important because the enemy never ceases to attempt to do what you just heard in this event. That's what the prince of this world really wants. And those led by him, whether consciously or unconsciously, are always trying to do that, to force their way into the church, cut out any opposition and make it in their own image and dictate to the church what she ought to believe and what she ought to do. So St. Thomas Beckett is a wonderful model and example and patron in this respect, and that's why it's even more of a shame that he isn't liturgically celebrated anymore. I don't think that's by chance. Saints like Beckett and Moore are exactly the models we need nowadays because the fight that they were fighting is raging pretty intensely right now. To conclude, I'll just read the prayer for the novena of St. Thomas Beckett, and after the prayer one mentions one's request in the novena or intention, and then follows it with an Our Father, Hail Mary, and a glory be. O God, for the sake of whose church the glorious Bishop Thomas fell by the sword of ungodly men, grant we beseech thee that all who implore his aid may obtain the good fruit of his petition. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, who livest and reignest with thee in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for listening to Catholic Daily Brief. Please give a five-star rating and a good review and consider becoming a member at patreon.com catholicdailybrief for more content. God bless.